Hello, and welcome to another moment with Eric Fleming. I am your host, Eric Fleming. So, everybody have a good Juneteenth holiday weekend. Um, came kind of sudden. Uh, came kind of quick. But it happened, right? So, if you grew up in a black household in Southside Chicago or you're from the South, for real, like Mississippi, Alabama, Georgia, Tennessee, whatever, gratitude goes a long way, right? So, it's appropriate for us to say thank you. It's appropriate us to show gratitude or to be grateful that June 19th is now a national holiday. And everybody should be familiar with the story. If you're not, June 19th, 1865, a colonel named Granger showed up with a regiment of colored troops, as we were called back then, um, black folks, black Union soldiers, um, and showed up in Galveston, Texas. And their job was to inform the black people there that they were no longer slaves. Um, General order number three, I believe. Um, and so they read that order, which is basically letting them know that in 18 January 1st, 1863, they were emancipated. Um, but they did not know that. Um, so, and it has been a celebration or a holiday, or it used to be called Jubilee Day, um, in Texas for years, basically ever since the announcement was, so 1866 on, um, and it's grown, right? Uh, to the point now where it is now considered a national holiday. And there were some people that were not really happy with that. Right? And I get why you're not happy, but I think you need to I think you need to remember, especially if you're from the South, as you remember basic tenets. And one of the basic tenets of living in the South is to be grateful. Um, it's hard sometimes because if it's not what you really want, you have to be grateful for the thought, 
right? And, you know, and then there's people being technical and saying, well, it wasn't really until December of that year when 15th Amendment was ratified into slavery and all that. And, um, the 13th Amendment. I mean, I get that too. But I think we, um, I think, you know, I think we highlight a lot of stuff because human nature dictates that, right? I think we nitpick. Everybody nitpicks. Everybody, uh, believes in the devil's in the details, all that. And some people want to speak truth no matter what, right? But they definitely want to speak truth when it's convenient. <laughs> so I just say this, this is me personally, right? I am very, very glad that we live in a country where sometimes pain is acknowledged. I don't know if we really have a reputation of fixing the pain. I think we have done a great job in managing the pain. I think we have gotten some medicine to help us manage the pain. But sometimes the toughest job is having the pain acknowledged. So when days like Martin Luther King's birthday or the commemoration of June 19th, 1865 happens, it's an acknowledgement of pain. It's not a remedy. It's not even a diagnosis of the pain. It's just an acknowledgement that there is pain, right? It's an acknowledgement that Black people have gone through a lot have sacrificed a lot, have contributed a lot to development of the country we call the United States of America. And there has been pain through all that. The question then becomes, now that you've acknowledged the pain, are you willing to get into the diagnosis and if you're willing to get into the diagnosis, then it means you're willing to cure it, right? Because 
for example, when you really are in pain, right? That's why you have uh, acetaminophen, naproxen, aspirin, ibuprofen. All those drugs are created to manage pain, right? They don't alleviate pain. They don't alleviate the cause of the pain. They just help you manage it from day to day, right? And that's what they advertise to do. They help you manage the pain. But if you don't know what causes the pain, you're going to continue to have the pain, right? And if you're not willing to try therapies or surgeries or other procedures medically to get to the root cause and eliminate the pain, you're still going to have it, right? So that's, that's where we are now, right? I think that's kind of the general consensus from what I've been hearing and monitoring is that the making Juneteenth a national holiday has again acknowledged pain that we have. But there there are still debates about getting to the root causes. So what I what I want to do in this first part of the show is in my attempt to lay out um, a diagnosis. And I'm not really smart or articulate enough to do that, but there were two people that tried out of thousands. And, you know, we only have so much time. And I just kind of, I kind of singled these particular things out when I heard them and I've just kind of kept them and so I could always refer back to it, right? The first one is very, very short. Um, eloquent to the point. It was written by a Morehouse college student. I guess maybe like in his sophomore year. Um So that was like in the late 1940s, I guess. 47, maybe. Um, And this was in one of the Atlanta newspapers. And it said, it it was an answer to a question about what do black people or in keeping with the time, what do Negroes or colored people want? Right? 
And this young man wrote, we want and are entitled to the basic rights and opportunities of American citizens. The right to earn a living at work for which we are fitted by training and ability. Equal opportunities in education, health, recreation, and similar public services. The right to vote. Equality before the law. Some of the same courtesy and good manners that we ourselves bring to all human relations. That's what he wrote. That that young man would later have a holiday named after him. It was Martin Luther King Jr. at the age of 18. But he kind of had to because 21 years later, he was no longer with us. So that's one diagnosis, if y'all picked up on that, right? It was very succinct, very detail-oriented. The other diagnosis comes from a gentleman named George White. Many of you may have not heard of him, but George White had the distinction for a long time of being the only black man in the United States Congress. Since reconstruction at this point, this was in January 29th, 1901, when he said this, right? And he was leaving Congress at that point, which meant that when he walked out that door, there were going to be no African-Americans in the United States Congress. So this was a speech given 40, nearly 50 years, 46 years before young Dr. King wrote his letter to the editor. And uh, I mean, just, just, to, just imagine the last black man in the United States Congress giving his farewell address, right? Standing before all those white people. As a matter of fact, after the, the passage I'm going to read, the next thing he said was, this, Mr. Chairman, is perhaps the Negro's temporary farewell to the American Congress. But let me say, Phoenix likes... He, Phoenix-like, he will rise up someday and come again. These parting words are in behalf of an outraged, broke, heartbroken, bruised, and bleeding, but God-fearing people, faithful, industrious, loyal, people-rising people, full of potential force. And that's a that's a powerful statement, and he was very... He was right. We came back. 
have more members now in the United States Congress than we ever had, even during Reconstruction. But it was the paragraph before that stands out with me. And, well, let me just read it. Says, Mr. Chairman, before concluding my remarks, I want to submit a brief recipe for the solution of the so-called American Negro problem. He asks no special favors, but simply demands that he be given the same chance for existence, for earning a livelihood, for raising himself in the scales of manhood and womanhood that are accorded to kindred nationalities. Treat him as a man, go into his home and learn of his social conditions. Learn of his cares, his troubles, and his hopes for the future. Gain his confidence. Open the doors of industry to him. Let the word Negro, colored, and black be stricken from all organizations enumerated in the Federation of Labor. Help him to overcome his weaknesses. Punish the crime-committing class by the courts of the land. Measure the standard of the race by its best material, cease to mold presidential and unjust public sentiment against him, and my word for it, he will learn to support, hold up the hands of, and join in with that political party, that institution, whether secular or religious, in every community where he lives, which is destined to do the greatest good for the greatest number. Obliterate race hatred, party prejudice, and help us to achieve nobler ends, greater results, and become satisfactory citizens to our brother in white. So Mr. White and Dr. King, the young Dr. King, basically laid out a, a simple premise for America to follow. Which, for some reason, hasn't been totally achieved. It hadn't been achieved by 1901. This was after the Civil War, the turn of the century, after Reconstruction. And Mr. White was the only black man in the Congress. Nearly 50 years later, you have a 18 year old acknowledging the same problem. And so now over a century after Mr. White gave the speech, that 120 years, right? Almost 80 years since Dr. King wrote that letter. We still have a problem. We still have not been able to get the full measure of
equality or in some cases equity right and i'll i'll get into that a little more um but you would think that at some point in time that over over years of constant requests that America would get to a point where it was like, okay, we need to fix this once and for all. And there have been attempts from a policy standpoint to to address things, to navigate through those. Attempts to actually offer a solution and maybe a way out. But part of dealing with pain, right? Even if you come up with a diagnosis, there has to be a treatment, right? And it has to be, whether it's, you know, a prescription, uh, whether it's, like you say, surgery, there's going to be some rehab involved, right? A lot of times. Which means that's a treatment. That means that it's something that has to be constantly worked on and worked on until the pain is gone. Totally. And we don't, a lot of times we invoke these policies, right? And think that the policy itself and the way that it's worded and the way that it's crafted um, will just automatically lead to the steps taken. But if you're going to manage pain, you're gonna need help. Whether that's a therapist, whether that's you know, a doctor, a chiropractor, whatever. You need somebody to constantly be there. Some constant, consistent force to make sure that the therapy is going right, that you're doing what you're supposed to do to get better. And so no matter how great public policy is, if there is no real will, if there is no people to make sure that the policy does what it's supposed to do that that you have the right people interpreting what the policy is really about then it doesn't alleviate the pain that it was that's been diagnosed right it doesn't help if it's not administered properly it actually could make it worse right So America, for whatever reason, has not properly dealt with the pain that black people deal with, although attempts have been made, some reluctant and some with bodaciousness, right? 
that we need to break these certain barriers, that we need to alleviate these certain discriminatory practices. But yet and still, there's always a fallback. And we always have to go through this cycle. And then other things that have been going on have to be exposed. It's just like never ending, right? So let me get to what I would like to see uh, on the other side. And so we're back. I wanted to go back to a point, right? And I said that I was going to get back to it. So let me let me let me do this. And I and it, there's a picture that floats around the internet from time to time that greatly explains um, what I'm about to talk about, right? So in this picture, right, there are. Three people, a man and his two sons. And they're at a fence trying to watch a baseball game. Right? So the man has his box. And he stands on his box. And because of his height, he can see the game with that box. Now, the other two sons definitely want a box, right? But one son asked for a box just like his dad, right? Because he figures if that box can help his dad see, then he needs a box just like his dad so he can see. Problem with that son, even though he's older, that he's not as tall as his dad. So he gets the same box, right? But he still can't see the game. But the younger son is emphatic in saying, I want to see the game. So he ends up getting a box and he's shorter than his brother and he's definitely shorter than his dad. But he ends up getting a box big enough that he can see over the fence, just like his dad. So, the older son represents equality, right? Whereas if you give me the same opportunity as everybody else, then I can be successful. That's the theory. The youngest son represents equity, meaning that knowing that I don't have everything that y'all have, I need to have every resource available 
so I can have every opportunity for success. Right. And what America gets caught up in politically is the capitalist solution as opposed to the democratic solution. Right. So in capitalism, if you create the same opportunity for everybody to make money, it works. Not everybody's going to make money, but most people are if you give them the same opportunity because at that point, it's up to what they bring to the table to take advantage of the opportunity that's been given. Right? If all things are equal, if I have access to the same schools, the same, uh, you know, starting from this moment, same schools, same banks, um, same real estate agents, whatever I need to have a successful business. If, if I could walk into the same place and get those same resources, then I should be able to make money. That's the capitalistic mindset. That's the that's that's equality in a capitalistic setting. And that's that's when you when you look at economic systems, it's all about equality. It's not about equity. It's about equality. Because it's like in communism, it's that everybody gets the same portion. Period. To survive. It's not about one person achieving over another person. It's about everybody getting an equal portion and working together as community to go forward. Right. But in a capitalist society, equity is everybody gets the same opportunity to make the same amount of money and achieve the life they want to live. Right. To attain as much wealth as they can. Some people are going to be better than others, but the opportunity is there for everyone to make money. And a lot of times, I think in politics, we get caught up in thinking because we're a capitalist country, or a country based on capitalism that our policies are dictated like that. So our mindset is, is that if we create the same opportunities for everybody, right? If we make Pell Grants available for everybody, if we provide social security for everybody, then people will rise up and thrive. But the problem is, let's just take Social Security, for example. We just mentioned that in a previous podcast. If you worked on a farm when Social Security was first set up, you didn't get it. You didn't qualify for Social Security, right? Because you were working for yourself. Technically, you weren't working a job where you were getting a wage that could be taxed to fund the system. And they didn't want to tax farmers per se for that. 
because the farmers were living on their own subsistence, whether it's selling their crops or just using them to eke out a daily life. They didn't get so scared. So that created an inequality for black people, especially in the South, because majority of them at that time, especially in the South, were agrarian. They were farmers. Their cousins up north that worked in the factories, they got social security. But the majority of blacks that lived in the south that really needed that boost, that security down the road, other than the property that they owned, right? those liquid assets, they were denied that. And that was public policy that was meant to help people, right? But that was based on a capitalistic philosophy, not a democratic or judicious philosophy, right? Because if you look at it from a democratic or judicious philosophy, right, then you want to provide equity. Because you want to acknowledge that at some point in time, the people that you're trying to help didn't even have the resources to even be in the conversation, right? It's just like an athlete. Pick any sport that doesn't have all the equipment they're going to be at a disadvantage to the athlete that does, right? Doesn't matter about the level of talent. If I don't have all the equipment that I need to play the game, no matter how creative I am, I'm going to be at a disadvantage in the long run, right? Now, if you were catching a ball with a milk carton in the Dominican Republic, once they gave you a glove, a real baseball glove, you were sensational. But if you had to play major league baseball players with your milk carton gloves, You would lose. You might even win a few games, but you will eventually lose in the long run because they they have the equipment. Because you're going to get hurt if you don't have the right equipment. That's part of the reason why you have equipment. So you won't get hurt. So you can continue to evolve. And even if you do get hurt, If you're a major league team, you have trainers. If you're not a major league team, you don't, right? I mean, I hope people see where I'm going with that, right? But it's not about just all things being equal. It's about making sure that everybody is at the starting line when the opportunity is there. You can't say, well, everybody's got an equal opportunity 
and you haven't even let me into the room. <laughs> right? I don't even know where the house is or the door. To say that it was there, great. But if I'm that far back, so in America, right, we have the opportunity to make money. It's an equal opportunity to make money in America, for the most part. And that had to be legislated to a degree. Even with the concept of always wanting to be laissez-faire, hands off with it, with capitalism, public policy had to intervene to guarantee that people had at least equal opportunities. But what has always been lacking is that equity piece. Right? And whenever people fight for equity and get it, or they demand it a lot and it becomes part of the national debate, then there's always something about, well, I don't know, that's too much of a burden to do. It's easy for us to say everybody's got equal opportunity. It's a lot of work to create equity. It's a lot of work. It's a commitment. Because it's, it's one thing to say, well, you get a school and you get a school. But it's another thing to say, well, this school is built this way and it has this kind of infrastructure and it has this kind of equipment and this kind of books. And the other school is just whatever the bare minimum is to do what you got to do, right? Now, the talent in that inadequate school could possibly rival the talent of the adequate school or the exceptional school. But if they're not getting all of the material, right? So my dad uses this analogy all the time. He, he talks about one of the greatest players he ever admired with Pete Rose, right? And he said he admired Pete Rose because there were many, many baseball players that naturally had the ability to play that were phenomenal baseball players. I mean, I've grown up with some, um, you know, I've related to some, But Pete Rose did not have a natural talent for baseball. He had a desire to play. He had a determination to be good enough to make it. But he didn't have the natural talent. He had to work at it. And so he did. He did everything he had to do. However many batting practices, however many wind sprints, whatever he had to do to put himself in a position to be a major league ball player. And because he just constantly did that, he constantly did that till the day he retired. He ended up having more hits than any other baseball player in major league history. 
right? He was an all-star. He was a world champion because he positioned himself to do it. Now, how did he position himself? Because there were opportunities available for him to do that. Somebody else who had the same desire and the same determination that didn't have the opportunities, didn't have the resources, couldn't do what Pete Rose did. That person had to have more talent, right? So that goes back to the conversation that black people have with their children, or at least mine did and my grandparents with my parents. But you have to be better than everybody else to make it. That's the pressure that's always been put on black people, right? Because there's equality and then there's equity. So my, my, my solution, my, my thought process, right? Toward public policy for African-Americans to better their existence in the United States, right? And I guess it's, you know, it has to be a policy as adopted in the private sector too, in their own unique way. But the concept is that in order for me to be equal, everything must be equitable, right? And it seems like it's a very, very simplistic way to say it, but it is what it is. If you want me to enjoy the equality that you say is out in horizon, then I need an equitable chance to get to that horizon to see it. I have to see it. I have to be in the room to make that happen. I can't just rely on my talent to overcome every obstacle that you throw at there. At some point in time, You've got to get rid of the obstacles so I can get to where I got to go. And the biggest obstacle that we face in the United States of America is racism. Institutional, systemic racism that people want to deny exists, but it's there. And I can't have an equal opportunity because it's not equitable because you have a system designed for me not to make it, not to even get to the starting line, not even to live long enough to enjoy a decent life. I don't get paid what I should be paid. I don't get taught why well, I should be taught. And then when I find out about all these things, 
then we have to make it complicated so I can't really utilize what I've learned or what I've attained, right? That's systemic, that's institutionalized, right? That's taught. People are taught to be racist. People are taught and conditioned to embrace systemic institutional racism to a to such an extent that they don't even believe it really exists and they benefit from it. Right? I mean, that's where we are. And it's a hard pill to swallow because you don't, that sounds so evil, right? That sounds so mean and manipulative, but the reality is, is that's what black people have faced since George White, since Martin Luther King, to now. Each and every one of us, right? And so a lot of us have taken the position of Angela Davis, right? You know, there's a serenity prayer. God, give me the ability, you know, to accept the things I cannot change. Angela Davis was like, no, I need the strength to change what I can't accept. Right? And that's really kind of the mindset. It's always a, 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 that, that challenge that all of us that have assumed some manner of leadership have taken on, that we, we can't accept things as they are because it's not conducive for us, for our existence to accept things as they are. It's very easy if you're on the other side of the tracks. It's very easy if you're on the upper level to accept things as they are. But when you are on the lower level to the extent where you're not even in the building, it's not, we can't accept that. Not when you keep telling us that America is equal. Equality is out there. You can do whatever you want to do. When you keep telling us that. But then I look around my surroundings and I'm like, how? Right? You know, some of us now have been more fortunate than others over the last 50 years or so where we have had better opportunities than some of our cousins and other relatives right but as a whole we still run into a wall somewhere Right. And if we break through in any way, shape or form, there is always this backlash that happens. And so when people say that America is not racist, it's like <clears throat> if America is not racist. Then every major league team would have had a black baseball player by 1948. 
everyone. Right? There were some teams in the 1960s that still hadn't had a black player. And Jackie Robinson broke the color barrier in 47. Right? There wouldn't have been a backlash. We wouldn't have had a tea party. We wouldn't have had the Trump presidency if it wasn't a backlash to Barack Obama being president. You got backlash now over a holiday. There are some people who are like, why they got to get another holiday? Why they got to get another holiday? As if you're not going to be off that same day. As if your bank ain't going to be closed. If your post office doesn't deliver the mail, right? It's their holiday. That's a mindset that's in our culture. In a very, very bad way. And I would dare to say there's 74 million people in this country that feel that way. Whether they are black, white, Latino, whatever. Because those people bought into something appealing about systemic institutional racism. Because they voted for a candidate that symbolized that in the most brashest, crudest form. Right? So what I want America to understand what I've always tried to work for in one way or the other is that in order for America to truly be equal, it has to be equitable first. We've got to go in and fix what's broken. And the biggest thing that is impeding America from being truly a more perfect union is systemic institutional racism. Once you get rid of that, if it's individual racism, you can navigate around individuals that are small-minded. But when it's institutionalized, it's a problem. And in order to create that more equitable nation, you've got to get rid of that. Because once things become equitable, then we can start really talking about equality and really start seeing equality work in its purest form. Right? Because the barriers are gone. So, Again, in the Southern tradition, I am very grateful that we have a holiday that acknowledges the end of um, the most horrific public societal, well, not public, societal practice in world history. Um, 
but until we really fix what led to the events of June 19th, 1865, because even in celebrating it, right, there was, they had to, they literally had to build a park in Houston for black people to celebrate. And it's the oldest park in Houston because they literally had to build it so black people could celebrate Juneteenth, right? They couldn't celebrate it in any other public space because it was whites only. Until you fix that problem, until you get rid of that mentality, totally, especially out of the institutions that are supposed to govern us all equally, right? That we're never, you're not dealing with the pain. You're not fixing the pain at all. Systematic institutional racism is a pain and a burden on black people. And to be honest, for those who inflict it as well. Until next time.